Merry Christmas! Most of y'all are being pretty shy about leaving any listener feedback, or else Logan and I are just that good at explaining everything. But I did hear from my friend Rebecca Hubbard in Portland, who suggested it might be interesting if we did an episode or a few episodes on the TV show The Crown. Not to tip our hand, but there may be something along those lines planned after we finish wrapping up this World History 100. So stay tuned. In the meantime, enjoy this episode about the pivotal world event of two not-too-bright guys in 1980s California getting a time machine to help them complete their history project. Okay, so this is an episode I have been waiting for for a long time, and obviously this uh, story has been alluded to in past episodes of the podcast, almost like little Easter eggs. Basically, anytime Bill and Ted found their way into the timeline, I made a point of mentioning it, and the reason we are talking about it now is that the present for Bill and Ted is now where we are at in our timeline, San Dimas, California in 1988, I believe. And then also their story does extend well beyond our timeline and the scope of this project because when they go to the future, that's 2688, but that does not fall under what we'll be getting to within our timeline. Well, in in 2688, we'll just have to make sure that we record another episode talking about... True, when when we get to that point in the timeline, right, right. Yeah, we'll just have to do it again. Good call. Remember that future digital me. Uh, so some of the historical figures that they deal with, I kind of want to do it both ways. So I want to talk, I do want to talk about 1988 and as far as just culturally, I think that's maybe the best thing to talk about when we're looking at Bill and Ted's because this movie is very 1980s and, uh, but I also want to talk about some of the historical figures that we didn't get to, uh, thus far. So like we already talked about, I did a whole episode on Joan of Arc, I did a whole episode on Genghis Khan, but starting chronologically with historical figures we're going to meet and then we'll get into the story itself would be Socrates. They do go to ancient Greece and pick up Socrates to join them in their project. And it says 410 BCE. And, you know, I mentioned before, I've watched this movie my whole life. I grew up, watched this movie. I was like nine or 10 when it came out and just, uh, just adore it. And, but something I, I quote all the time, the whole idea that, you know, true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing I got that from Bill and Ted's, not from like a philosophy class that talked about Socrates. It's like I got it from Bill and Ted's, but I've always kind of honestly taken that to heart. And, you know, as far as wanting to always be learning and not assuming I know it all, even though I do kind of act like a know it all at times, you know, <laughs> starting a history podcast just because I think I should. But the whole true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing. And I think that is an important sentiment. And it, it does tie into ideas that Socrates actually did have and he didn't write down most of his own thoughts we actually know of Socrates and his teachings from Plato Socrates did not write things down as mentioned in Bill and Ted's he was ultimately put to death for quote-unquote corrupting the young which they of course compared to Ozzy Osbourne appropriately and the biggest thing they mentioned in the movie as well is the Socratic method and just the idea of breaking down an idea by asking questions that almost like broader questions that have the purpose of narrowing down the scope of what you're talking about and just like okay why do you think this is it because of this well why do you think that is it because of this and kind of does tie into Sigmund Freud who is another person they capture for their project 
and just uses that series of questioning to psychoanalyze someone and maybe why they feel or believe something. With Socrates, it would have been maybe more a broader stroke of maybe good versus evil in the world or what you know what is what right and what is wrong. And and again, it's you know you're doing something right when people are talking about you almost 2,500 years after the fact. And the Greek philosophers in general are kind of just famous for this kind of this first point almost in human history that we started thinking these things outside of just basically what was subsistence survival and warfare for the kind of the beginnings of human history. Let's see the other one. Again, I'm trying to go chronologically. They actually don't go too ancient outside of Socrates. Well, they hit Genghis Khan, which we already, well, I guess that's not that's I kind of did a whole episode on him already. Yeah, I would refer, I would refer people to the episode on I think the movie was called Mongol. And we talked about Temujin, who is Genghis Khan. Keep in mind, Genghis Khan is his title, not his name, which right. is kind of right. a, you can win some, win some trivia money on that. And uh, Joan of Arc we did. Beethoven I briefly mentioned in the Amadeus episode because Salieri did go on. It was one of Beethoven's early teachers, so kind of connects us to right. Mozart. And so the one they do go back and they even kind of bluff. So like when he's pick, they pick up all the people that they used to be using, they even put the title card on the screen that says what year in the location. They don't do that yeah. when they go to medieval England. They just say we're in England in the 15th century. And they say it's the castle of King Henry. There were four King Henrys in the 15th century because you basically yeah. go, you know, four, five, six, seven uh, are all in the 15th century. And it seems like that's intentionally left vague. And the idea that that the princesses are named Elizabeth and Joanna. That does not tie into anything historically. So this is more of just a because they got picked up and brought to 1988. That is actually one of the, th- the theories online. Is that the so the reason that they're not <laughs> mentioned in the history is because yes, they were removed from the timeline by Rufus. So that's the reason that these are not. You would think they would have the some mention though of maybe the missing princesses or something, kind of like we have with the princes in the tower that was supposedly killed by Richard III. You would think there would still be a little record of their their birth and that they went missing at some point. So that is kind of odd that yeah. they were completely removed from the record. But again, maybe that was you know information suppression because they left willingly, and so their dad kind of wanted to see that they were written out of history. You with me? <laughs> yeah. This. this so. This is only my second time ever seeing this movie, and like I, <laughs> I you're not on board for this, have, are you? <laughs> no, I, I'm not not on board. I just <laughs> I don't have as much of an affinity towards this movie as you do. Um, you know, I I mean I I saw it when I was oh man I was probably in high school. I was maybe 14 or 15 years old when I first saw and it. It was decidedly and, dated at the time. Oh. It's so it's like so 80s. So like, you know, watching it 20 years later, I just like it's it's fine. I I will say this. I do like there is like some cool stuff that they do as far as like like the time travel stuff where they're like, all right, if I just think about, you know, we just got to make sure that we go back in time and get the keys and put them behind the sign. Oh, look, here they are. Like that stuff is is kind of cool. But yeah, as as far as the, the movies, like it's it's just so 80s. And I wasn't around when the movie came out to probably appreciate it and have the nostalgia for it that you do a hundred percent agree like <laughs> so i did re i rewatched it even though i and i seen it about i said about 18 months ago and i just rewatched it again the other day and i absolutely understand that this is not high quality filmmaking this is not good acting this is a low budget b movie 
that does have clever moments, like you're saying. And and yeah. frankly, I think some of the stuff is kind of laugh out loud funny. Some of it is also, that's not funny. Why are you guys acting like this is funny? And it's eye roll. I get that. But yeah. so it's it's absolutely 100% nostalgia for me. Yeah, and, and we've we've talked about this before too, but I think also like, by the time I saw this movie, like I already I knew Keanu Reeves as like true, you know, action star was in the Matrix. You know, he's in Speed, and then seeing him in this movie, like acting, you know, like Ted Theodore Logan, <laughs> it it, it kind of you know it, it was almost like it was like what we talked about um, with uh, Jojo Rabbit, where you're like, oh, like you know, it's I'm not watching this character, I'm watching Scarlett Johansson. Oh, right. Whereas in this movie, right. I'm like, I just, I just see Keanu Reeves, and I'm just, a lot of, a lot of eye roll. Right. Um, Whereas for me, this was my first exposure to Keanu Reeves. This is who he was. Right. Everything else is yeah. odd after the fact. Right. Although I, I guess this movie is almost not super historically influential, but it did launch Keanu Reeves' career. Oh, right, right. I think, yeah, I think it must have done decently well. Um, it has George Carlin, who doesn't, doesn't do a lot of movies per se, but was actually yeah. very, he's, he's probably the strongest performance in the, in the film. And also the two, I suppose you could also make a very strong case that this movie went a long way toward instilling me with a love of history. And that yeah. 10-year-old me is seeing them interact with these historical figures and getting curious about all those kinds of things. So I, I think it was almost important for me. And because, and I, I totally get it. If I saw it for the first time yesterday, I'd be like, this is garbage. But because <laughs> it's so tied in to my literal growth, I, I just can't separate it. And uh, and I just have this affinity yeah. for it that I don't expect you yeah. to share, uh, honestly. Do you... Uh... Do you like the second one? Have you seen the second one? I think I saw the second one once or twice, and I didn't like it as much. And again, if you think about how it would have timed out, too, I would have been getting more to middle school age, and, and yeah. honestly, it's not as good. And so yeah. I just haven't made the point to rewatch it. I do think the concept is very clever, though. The whole idea of them basically playing games with literal death, and there's them parallels I didn't get at the time to Seventh Seal. I mean, it's straight up Seventh oh, okay. Seal. If you think about them yeah. playing games with death, that's exactly from Seven Seal. I've never seen it. I just I know I know that they you know they like go to they die and like go to hell or something and and they have to escape by playing Battleship with death or right, something like right. that. But it, it's multiple yeah. games, so I, yeah. They start it's yeah. So I think it even, I don't know if it starts with literally chess like Seven Seal, but it ends up being like they keep winning and then death keeps saying like best two out of three, best three out of four. Gotcha. And so Battleship is kind of where the joke get, gets to and Twister and stuff like that. But it might even right. start with chess because of the whole seven seal mm. thing. Yeah. And then also there, there's a third one coming out, which, which actually will be out by the time this is posted theoretically. Yeah. If, uh, if things don't. Goodness gracious. I don't want it or care. Like why? <laughs> <laughs> why why are they bill bill and ted three uh this movie I'll, came out like 30 years ago um blade runner did the same thing and actually frankly blade runner is another good example as far as i didn't see blade runner for the first time until i was you know in my mid-20s and i am not a huge fan of it obviously it's a completely different kind of movie but just one i i, I equally feel you kind of had to be there for, and if I was 20 in 1980, I probably would have considered Blade Runner one of my favorite movies of all time. But because I didn't see it until well, 20 years see, after the fact, I don't care for it as much. 
The difference, though, is that Blade Runner is actually good. Correct. But it wasn't, I, I, I thought, I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think Blade Runner ages way better than this. Not to make this a Blade Runner episode. They also but have I different think, goals, though. They have different goals. Yeah, that's, yes, that's true. Yeah, I, yeah. And frankly, we've seen lots of other versions of Blade Runner type movies with, you know, just gritty dystopian stuff. What's another thing in the genre of Bill and Ted's? I guess maybe like Hot Tub Time Machine or something like that. Yeah, but even that's more like a dumb, like, teen sex comedy. This is, this one is actually, I think this is even better than something like that. I'd okay, rather, okay. I'd rather watch this than Hot Tub Time Machine. Okay. But yes, I, I it's I, I do this think it's it's so clever and just there's just certain lines but for as dumb as these guys are, there are certain lines that I actually just think are Sorkin's not the right comparison, but just very cleverly written. Like uh when when uh they get to yes. England and Billy the Kid is being super chill about it. Hang on, I'm gonna find the exact quote here. Okay. This is like you're handling the yes, something yes. of time travel. Right. So like I forget if it's I think it's Bill says Billy, you are dealing with the oddity of time travel with the greatest of ease. <laughs> yeah. Just, and so they, they have such, they, they do have a kind of this unique way of talking that as dumb as these guys are, they actually kind of have a clever use of language. Yes. And honestly, the whole idea is that for those that haven't seen Bill and Ted's and aren't as enamored with it as I am, the whole concept is that George Collin comes from the future to make sure these guys pass history class because if they don't pass history class, they're going to be forced to break up their band and that would be catastrophic for the history of world events because their music ends up basically being the foundation of the future future society. It, almost like a new, not just religion. Well, yeah, but, and it literally solves like world hunger and world peace and poverty. Yeah, Like yeah. their music solves every problem in the world and yes. creates a utopian society. Yes, and it's legit. And... <laughs> Uh, where I dig it though too is like when they go to the future I love the idea that the people 700 years in the future who have built their whole society based on Bill and Ted's music recognize that these guys are simpletons but it's almost the purity and joy of their simpleness that is the foundation of everything else and the music everything is it's just chill I mean the whole I mean the quotes within the movie repeated are be excellent to each other and party on dudes and so it's not this hedonistic yes. kind of party on. It's more just this universal love of everything. There's a beauty to what they're going for here, if you think about it. And again, I've I've spent far longer thinking about it than anyone <laughs> should. Basically, what I'm saying is, will you start my Bill and Ted cult with me, Logan? <laughs> um. So yeah, there are there are definitely some mistakes. So this movie kind of had a only somewhat facetious reputation as being a, one of the most historically accurate movies ever. I think just because when they're going back and picking up these figures, the dates seem to be right. But we already said the England thing is wrong. And then, of course, they also, when they go back to, they say it's San Dimas, 1 million BC, that doesn't work at all because there would not be human people in North America right. or even humans to that level. That level of ancient humans wouldn't even exist a million years ago. So... Right. That doesn't really time out very well. I love, though, the the shot of when they pick up Joan of Arc in the cathedral. Because I'm trying to picture that from her point of view. This super, super spiritual teenage girl. And then literally on the altar, this thing manifests itself from the heavens. And even how Keanu reaches out to her is very kind of Sistine Chapel, where he kind of reaches out like the hand of God before bringing her into yeah. the booth. And her sword drops. That's... That's probably my favorite shot in the whole whole movie when they pick up Joan of Arc. 
Well, and there's a because isn't there there's like a story or something of Joan of Arc saying that she met God or something like that? Oh, right. It definitely ties into her idea of, you know, feeling like she was hearing voices and that God was speaking to her. And right. So I think that's kind of, I don't know if that was intentional, intentional or not, but like where she like meets God and sees heaven, like she was just actually in 1988. Right. Exactly. It was uh, Bill and Ted took her to 1988 San Dimas. So, yeah, kind of we're kind of bouncing all over the place. And that's that's definitely fine for a movie like this. Uh, what I did want to talk about was was the 80s and the 80s aesthetic. And whew, yeah, this movie is definitely rooted in the 80s when Bill is wearing a crop top sweatshirt for the entire <laughs> movie. <laughs> it is so horrible. Ted looks mostly fine, but Bill with the crop top sweatshirt is ridiculous. And yeah, so 80s, probably more even 80s California. I don't think that was I feel like that wasn't a thing in Kansas, but I was also not the right age necessarily. So, yes, I I grew up ish in the 80s. I mean, like I kind of went from what, you know, one year old to 11 years old, basically during the 80s. So yeah. I was pretty young, kind of grade school. Age. I, was, you know, I wasn't in high school until the 90s, but I was definitely kind of around during all this. And the 80s aesthetic, I, I, I don't know if you got a chance to watch that video clip that I sent you yesterday or the day before. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't watch it when you I think I've seen that video before. Okay. It's because it's from Vox, right? Uh, I forget. Well, I sent you a couple. But the, the, the one about where it was kind of talking about that group out of Milan that kind of was responsible for a lot of the 80s aesthetic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was, uh, I forget what it was called off the top of my head now. But just I did this. 80s has this very distinct, and it's almost like this intentional intentional rejection of everything that had come before it. You think about how, so the 60s were kind of, you know, the flower and the colorful, but you get the 70s, it's kind of outside of disco, it's all the furniture and stuff was kind of this subdued brown palette, almost it seemed like, and just the 70s is just kind of gritty and dirty. You even think of the movies from the 70s, gritty and dirty, yeah. and then so yep. you get into the 80s, and there's like this rejection of that, and it's, let's be bold with our colors and with yep. even shapes and they kind of show these all these different kinds of furniture that just let's just reject everything and think of it from scratch in a quote-unquote modern way that now you know 30 40 years later is in and of itself dated in an interesting way and then all this times out perfectly with mtv as you get into the 80s and basically the 80s are dominated by mtv kind of from start yeah. to finish because it fades in the 90s and didn't exist in the 70s so i mean the night the 80s really were like the mtv decade with this kind of unique style and then you get to 1988 with our characters bill and ted and you can just kind of see they're they're kind of this manifestation of 80s and mtv culture and of course even their obsession with rock bands and stuff and wanting to start their yeah. own it's yeah and trying to get uh, Eddie Van Halen to join their band right before they even learn how to play <laughs> right <laughs> uh, so San Diego is a real city in California it's about 30 minutes east of downtown LA mm-hmm. and just a town of about 30,000 people still the movie wasn't shot there though right it was actually shot, the movie, shot in Phoenix it sounds the movie like was it. shot all, yeah in the Phoenix area there's a uh, the high school that they uh, show at the beginning is yes. a uh, it's, it's not there anymore but it's Coronado High School in Scottsdale oh huh and then um, the Circle K that they're in front of when they, you know, meet each other at the phone booth. That's in uh, that's in Tempe. That's just south of uh, Arizona State. And then uh, Waterloo, the that water park is a real water park. Uh, it's not called Waterloo. It's called something else. That's in Mesa. And apparently the uh, scenes that they shot there, they couldn't afford to like shut down the park for the day. 
like the, oh, the crew. So are those actual are those like actual guests yeah. at the park? Yeah, like if you like in the background, the people going on the slides and stuff, those are all like just people that were at the water park that day when they were shooting. Oh huh. That's awesome. Um and it is Waterloo actually at the park, the name of the park itself. Um but it's definitely a play right. on uh, Waterloo. And of course, even that's a joke. I mean, some of these jokes I didn't obviously get when I was ten years old. And so like you know, they guessed that. How, how would they guess he's at Waterloo? <laughs> it's like, oh, right. It's hopefully on Waterloo. And yeah. uh, another joke, honestly, and you're going to laugh because <laughs> I should have got this a long time ago. A joke I didn't get until rewatching it this time two days ago <laughs> is that even Ted's name, Ted Theodore, Theodore Logan, right. is, is a joke. It's backwards. It's backwards. <laughs> I yes. got that yesterday. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Because I've grown up with it, it never occurred to me to rethink about it. That like, oh yeah, right, nicknames yeah. are in quotes in the middle, not your full name. Right. His name is Ted and his nickname is Theodore, which is longer and in quotes, yeah. <laughs> right. So I just got that for the first time. <laughs> um, also, you might already be aware of this. They are character inspiration or character name inspirations for my novel Magic Carpet Ride. I have Logan is the narrator, and then one of his buddies is Preston. So Logan and Preston, the last names of these guys, that was intentional. With incidentally Michael, the third of their trio, being like Michael J. Fox from Back to the Future. So oh, okay. That, so that was kind of all intentional. Let's see. Another big kind of flaw, unless you're going to argue they set it up after the fact. So they're rushing to get to their presentation in time. But how do they set up like all the pyrotechnics and everything? Like they had this perfect presentation set up, but they show up like at 80s, the last minute. 80s movie magic. I guess. <laughs> unless unless Bombed they... it the first time and then went back and did it. Well, no, I'm just saying they could have, uh, yeah, they, they could have just, you know, like, like they said with the keys, as long as they remember to, after their presentation, get in the time machine and go back and set up everything for themselves before, just like with the typewriter. Right. How they read the typewriter and it says, you know, hey, you know, rescue these guys p.s duck and they duck right as the guys turn it around as long as they remember to go back and settle that stuff up then that's fine it can be explained with time travel i guess and i think honestly having seen this so many times because seriously 20 is probably a low number you, you start to put yourself into the heads of different characters like seriously imagine what's going through the head of that history teacher as he's watching this on screen on stage so obviously he thinks it's oh, all yeah he thinks they got some buddies to play these parts that's fine he doesn't think it's literal but still, he's like, holy crap, I had no idea these guys were capable of this. This is the best presentation that we've ever had. Like, Yes. I thought it was kind of funny, too, that like it's also indicative of how 80s this movie is, that the very first thing that happens in the presentation is Billy the Kid comes up and pulls out a gun and shoots one of the lights. And everyone's just yeah. like, yeah, this is fine. This is a this is a high school presentation. <laughs> <laughs> they got glass falling on them. Yeah, but it's yeah. the 80s, eh, whatever. Just, yeah, just, just shoots a gun inside of a high school. And everyone's like, yeah, this is whatever. <laughs> um, one of the best things, too, that I didn't get in, uh, until more recently is when Napoleon is using a risk board to kind of spell out his future plans of invading mm-hmm. Russia. And Ted's like, I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> Yep. It's like, yeah, Ted's right, dude. You're going to go back and you're going to do that and it's going <laughs> to fail miserably. Don't invade Russia. Which, if you think about it, the fact that they didn't like accidentally influence any of those characters is almost like a miracle. Like, So I watched this video. It's from Cracks.com. It's on their YouTube channel um, on their series Obsessive Pop Culture Disorder. Mm. But it's about... Uh, 
it's all about movies that are like way different if you think about it from a different character's point of view. And the last thing that they do is they talk is that Dan O'Brien in that video talks about Bill and Ted. And he's like, it's honestly insane that like they didn't have more issues with the people that they brought along. Like, for instance, when you think about like uh, Genghis Khan, uh, <laughs> well, Genghis Khan, but even like um, the, the first example that he talks about is Billy the Kid and Abraham Lincoln. So Billy the Kid was born in 1859. He for sure knows that Lincoln is about to be assassinated. Oh. <laughs> also, Billy the Kid was killed when he was 22 years old. Oh, right. The actor's about 10 years too old. I did look that up. Right. But Sigmund Freud was a contemporary, probably would have heard about that. Oh, like, right. The fact that he didn't say anything. And then they take him to a mall with probably a bookstore somewhere. <laughs> Like it's 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 a good thing Joan of Arc didn't go like into Barnes and Noble while she was there. You know what I mean? Burned and alive. Just find yeah. Just walk through the history section and look at what happens to her. Same same thing with any of them, really. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very uh, valid point, and uh, and just how chill they are with the whole thing, though, too. So obviously, you mentioned Billy dealing with the oddity, but all of them, like. Genghis Khan is like the one who grabs Abraham Lincoln and pulls him into the booth. Like Genghis Khan understands what's going on and is just cool with it. <laughs> and then I still always come back to <laughs> you're gonna laugh. I, I I teared up a little bit during the movie this time around. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. <laughs> Honestly, and I mean, you got to go back to my episode on Joan of Arc, but it's she's just a figure that I just feel, I don't know, so much empathy toward and just so unique in history of what this girl represented. And I do say girl because she didn't even make it to 20 before she was burned at the stake. And she was probably not the general to the extent that Bill and Ted kind of talk about, but she was was more of kind of like a lucky token cheerleader type that they brought along for good luck. You know, they were putting her in the front line. She wasn't making battle decisions. Right. But she was kind of their Hail Mary last chance to save ourselves from destruction at the hands of the English. And it did turn around everything. And this, from her point of view, what her life was from this devout Christian girl who literally believes God has chosen her to save the French to she kind of actually does save the French to then captured by the English and burned at the stake. And and I, I, I think this girl is well cast in the role of Joan of Arc. And so I think I just kind of had a moment of reflection during the movie where I was actually trying to like empathize and put myself in Joan of Arc's shoes. And I kind of got emotional. And it just yeah. kind of, anyway, just because I was kind of watching it deeper than I usually usually do. And it just, again, I'm just fascinated by her life and the tragic end to it. And just, I'm glad she got to experience 1988 San Dimas. <laughs> 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 so, so yeah, the, the 80s are kind of very distinctive and... Oh, I feel like you get to the 80s and 90s, and those are kind of the last decades. And maybe we just need more time, but I feel like those are the last decades that kind of have a distinctive stamp and feel to them. The first decade of the 2000s, now even though it's 10 years removed, I feel like doesn't have that same kind of identity that you can point to the first decade of the 2000s and think of exactly what that aesthetic is in the same way you can with the 80s and the 90s. Right. And the 80s obviously was kind of the, oh, the coming out party of Gen X. So you kind of have this first generation post baby boom that's kind of looking to find itself. And it's kind of you know known as like the selfish decade. It's the cocaine decade, the Wall Street decade. There's just a 
It's just a very kind of distinctive vibe to the 80s. And actually, so I was listening to a podcast interview with, it was Rob Lowe. Okay. And I forget who he, I forget, it might have been Mark Maron's podcast, WTF. And he's talking to Rob Lowe mm-hmm. about how it's easy for us to look back and we know how dangerous cocaine is. And it's like, are these guys crazy? And everyone was doing it in the 80s, but Rob Lowe and Mark were kind of talking about that's not how it was viewed at the time. It was considered basically like almost like uh, a high-end version of an energy drink today, where it's just yeah. like, yeah, it's expensive, but we're wit- rich and we can afford it, and it's this quick little pick-me-up. And they just they right. didn't see it the way we do with you know like crack dens or addiction. It was more just of a it was a cultural thing. So yeah, they all did it because they all didn't think it was a big deal. And it was just kind of right. an interesting look at cocaine usage in the 80s that I guess I had never considered. And it was kind of after that that they started realizing, you know, with, yeah. the, with the deaths and the addiction and well, everything else. And obviously cocaine is like way worse than drinking energy drinks, but like energy, energy drinks also aren't good for you. Correct. I call them poison. I've never had one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little hypocritical of me to say because like I have one right here that I drank earlier today, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it's not as bad as cocaine. <laughs> right. And, yeah. Uh, and then this kind of sums everything up about Gen X and the 80s and everything else. I'm just going to read the the quick little Wikipedia paragraph here about Gen X. So as children in the 70s and 80s, a time of shifting societal values, Gen Xers were sometimes called the latchkey generation due to a reduced adult supervision compared to previous generations because you had more you know parents in the work workforce. And there's so basically, mm. I didn't actually realize this. I've heard the term latchkey. But I didn't realize it refers to basically kids who come home after school to no supervision. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like a latchkey kid. Yeah. I, I honestly had heard the term, didn't actually know what it meant. Oh, okay. Uh, so it says this was a result of increasing divorce rates and increased maternal participation in the workforce, which you just mentioned, uh, yep. prior to widespread availability of childcare options outside the home. Okay. So that kind of all makes sense. As adolescents and young adults in the 80s and 90s, extras were dubbed the MTV generation, uh, sometimes being characterized as slackers, cynical, and disaffected. Some cultural influences on Gen X were the musical genres of grunge and hip-hop and independent films. And then in midlife, they have kind of found a active, happy work-life balance. Wait, you said that you said that Gen X was considered slackers by, like, baby boomers? Oh, absolutely. And hippies were considered slackers by the greatest generation, <laughs> and now millennials are considered slackers by Gen X. Right. Although I, I always thought that there's like the whole OK Boomer thing. I thought that was more of like a boomers versus millennials and Gen Xers are like, we're not part of this. <laughs> I, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's also funny that like you'll have maybe older Gen Xers or, or baby boomers that'll say like, oh, you know, these these millennials are with their TikToks and, you know, and not, you know, not want to go to college and stuff. It's like, no, no, dude. That's Gen Z. Millennials are like... Yeah, millennials are like 30 years old now, bro. Right, millennials are paying the mortgage, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I do think it's interesting, too, too. You think about, as you get into the early 90s, with grunge and the big independent film scene and all and all that. Anyway, thanks for both you and everyone listening for humoring me and getting to <laughs> talk about one of, I hate to call it a favorite movie, but I, I almost have to call it a favorite movie and just... I think it's just a formational movie for me as a movie watcher and history fan and probably more important in my life than I realized until we started talking about it just now. So thanks for humoring me. And we will pick back up next week with our regularly scheduled broadcast.